Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. If you are a dedicated reader of military blogs and journals, it's difficult to go a day without coming across a reference to Mission Command. But what is it really? The Army defines Mission Command as the exercise of authority and direction by the commander using mission orders to enable discipline initiative within the commander's intent to empower agile and adaptive leaders in the conduct of unified land operations. Its origins are found in the Prussian military reforms during the first decade of the 19th century, following their humiliating defeat at the hands of Napoleon in 1806. Military reformers within the Prussian army understood that victory hinged on a flexible organization composed of units led by officers empowered to use their own judgment to act based on their appraisal of the situation rather than rigidly adhering to a preset plan when their orders no longer fit reality. Instead, officers were expected to understand the overall intent of their commander and use the resources at hand to achieve the why of the mission, even if it doesn't follow the strict how of the issued orders. The Army officially adopted Mission Command as the foundation of its doctrine in 2012, Yet, confusion about what it really is endures, and unfortunately, discussion about it has devolved to the buzzword level in many circles today. To clear up some of the myths and misunderstandings of the concept, and to discuss its origins, I'm pleased to share with you a discussion between two of the leading scholars in the field. Don Vandegriff has been one of the leading proponents for Mission Command in the Army and the Marine Corps for more than 20 years. He's written extensively on the subject, authoring and editing seven books on the topic. And Dr. Bruce Gudmundson, a historian specializing in military innovation, having written several books on that subject, including one of my personal favorites, Stormtroop Tactics, Innovation in the German Army. Both men are personal mentors of mine, and I am sure you will find this dialogue as enlightening as I have. Hello, uh, I'm Bruce Goodmanson, and I'm here with Don Vandegrift, and we're talking about mission command and learning. So, Don, you've done a lot of work in Mission Command. You've got a book coming out. T- tell us about the book. The book is called The Missing Link, uh, Developing for Mission Command through United States Naval Institute Press. Uh, it should be out this summer. I'm doing the proofs right now, the, the, looking over the copy editing. And we're recording in January of 2019. Yep. So, and summer of 2019. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's been a five-year project, uh, but specifically what it deals with Everyone talks about Mission Command, but except for the Germans, no one has a detailed way of how do you learn to do Mission Command. And uh, I know you, Bruce, have done a lot of work. You've influenced my work in a lot of positive ways. Well, thank you. Uh, but the book is really like a handbook, and the, the editors at uh, Naval Institute Press are really thrilled about it because they've said the book's unique. They've never seen a book like this, and they think it's going to do well. You know, I, I know a number of the authors. I know uh, it's an anthology. So, well, that's another one. Yes. Yes. Let me get to the, that's the anthology. I have my own book coming out, and then the anthology, which is seventeen essays written by eighteen authors 
from throughout the U.S. services and NATO. So we're talking about two books. Yes, right. two books. And the anthology is coming out? In the January. In, in the January. Two weeks. So, okay, two, two weeks. Okay, so so I... Um, I apologize. No, no, I, I was a little, little confused. Um, you're very prolific, Don. The, uh, so the, right, the anthology, uh, that was the one I was familiar with, and that's the second of your anthologies that you and Steve Weber yes. have, have put out. And the... Um, uh, no, I know some of the authors there. I know uh, Eric Sibyl from Baltic Defense College, or formerly from Baltic Defense College, uh, Tommy Krabberud from the Norwegian Naval Academy. Anyway, so, so there's a lot of reading material out there, a lot of it from, from, from your pen. But tell us, what is, what is Mission Command? Mission Command is a poorly translated word, Mission Tactics, from Optics Tactic, Optics Tactic, uh, which first appeared, as you know, in the German... Uh, Field regulations of 1888 didn't really sparingly, very, very rarely do you see it until 1904 or so in German uh, directives publications. Uh, but it, it, and my translation really is empowerment tactics or empowerment subordinates. Uh, but mission command is the ultimate. If it's done right, it's a cultural philosophy, not a command and control as the U.S. Army currently defines it. it is a cultural philosophy in that you develop subordinates at the highest professional level. So when they're in a situation where no one's around, they, they are willing and take joy in making the right decisions. So it's about highly professional subordinates that are willing to take responsibility and make the right decision based on commander's intent. That intent spells out what the vision of success is. So that's my definition. Okay, so right. the translation of the German Auftragstaktik I have my German-speaking cat here, so he can help help me with the with the pronunciation. And I apologize to all native German speakers out there for for my pronunciation. Uh, Auftragstaktik, uh, the tactic of the Auftrag of the task, really focusing on on um, on the task. But you're talking about it not just as tactics or a command and control system, but really as a total culture. Yes. And you talk about. Um, Joy in taking responsibility is a wonderful, wonderful German word. And I'm trying to... Um, Berg's... Uh, Entscheidungsfreudigkeit, yes. right? Or, uh, or, or the Verantwortungsfreudigkeit. Yes. The, the joy in, taking, in making a decision, taking a decision for English friends. Uh, or um, uh, the uh, joy in, in taking responsibility. And there's some there, there's some wonderful wonderful stories. Whenever you whenever you see that word in the old German military literature, it's associated with a story of somebody who sees a situation, who acts on his own responsibility, whether it's it's against orders or 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 in the absence of orders. And he's doing it for the common good. It's not about being a glory hound. It's not about about putting himself out front. But it's really about, okay, what what does the team, the larger team, the larger operation, the larger strategy, whatever the larger thing is, what does that need? And often it is unsung. So it's it, it sometimes it's somebody who says, okay, this is the important thing. This this is. This is the Schwerpunkt, right? The most important thing that's going on right now. Uh, often translated as center of gravity, a literal translation, term Clausewitz used a lot. You see a lot in the German literature. 
But sometimes you're not at the Schwerpunkt. Sometimes you're saying, you know, somebody else is out there at the Schwerpunkt, and he is very, very busy. He's, he's doing the decisive thing, the thing that will settle this whole business, but I need to guard a flank. I need to take care of this thing. I need to stretch my forces out to cover this area. I need to do, do something that supports that. So it, a very interesting concept. And, and, and the fact that you've got all these, these words and... and, and um, Apologize to listeners for, for throwing all these new words at them. Uh, tells you that, that, that it is a culture. Exactly. And I think that's... We, we, we're, the U.S. military is a very industrial... Remains an industrial age culture. And what we mean by that is it's built upon what made good factory workers. Being able to follow rules, be able to follow processes... Managers could manage that because they had a book in front of them. They had a checklist. We remain that way uh, uh, without understanding that the intangibles are more powerful than the tangibles. The Germans realize this. You, you continually read more and more as you move into the early 20th century, especially their military weekly magazine, which had captains writing articles side by side with generals. And something even when they had no money in the interwar period after World War One, everyone looked forward to. So you're talking about the Militaire Volkenbach. Yeah, they did the Military Weekly, yeah. which, which strange to say, was published twice a week. Okay. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Oh yes. The yes. Cult, but the culture—that's yeah. where you find your most references to optics, tactique, and the, th- the things you spoke yes. about. Yeah. But how they define it in terms of a culture, vice. A linear application. Yes. And and for those of you, the scholars out there and people who read German, uh, you can find that uh, almost the full set of the full set of the Militär Wochenblatt uh, at the Hathi Trust website. Yeah. So it's 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 online, both the uh, the regular issues, mostly mostly bi-weekly, uh, notwithstanding the name, but also their uh, their Beihefte, these these supplementary volumes, which uh, like, like like a Sunday supplement to a newspaper. Yeah. And those are often composed of, of presentations at the, uh, at the military society, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, founded by Gerhard von uh, Scharnhorst and friends uh, early in the 19th century. Military Gesellschaft. Yeah, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff out there. And of course, we're going to, um, uh, when we publish this, this podcast, uh, provide some links to all these things. Uh, you also talked about, you know, the, you, you oppose this to or contrast this with a factory mm-hmm. system. Uh, the, uh, my friend Chris Paperone just wrote yes. a very good book, published a very good book about Taylorism in the U.S. Army arsenal system. And you get a very good sense of, of how a factory system works. I think a, a, a more, uh, a, from you know, the present day, I, I like to compare a family restaurant to, to a McDonald's. You know, the, the, if if you've got a McDonald's, uh, that that's a factory system. You, you you get your job, you put you put on your uniform, you show up, and you do part of the job. You know, you you may be just the person who puts on the ketchup and mustard. Uh, you you don't do the whole thing. Whereas if you're in a family restaurant, you got to learn everything, and but you also have a great deal of flexibility. 
So let's say you're living in a, in a part of the world and there's a bumper crop of tomatoes. If you have a McDonald's, it doesn't change anything. You still have that same tomato slice from the supplier on the hamburger. If you have a family restaurant, I'm thinking of my, my favorite family restaurant here in, here, yes. here, here in Quantico. Right across the street. Yes. Uh, there's a bumper crop of tomatoes. Oh, wow. Okay. You can make tomato sauce. You can make tomato soup. You can make, make your own ketchup. You can do all sorts of things. You can can some of them for the, you know, for the winter. There's all, you, you have this ability to, to react. But it takes a lot more skill. I mean, to be, to, be, to be the cook in the family restaurant, to manage a family restaurant, you've got to learn all these, these skills. And more than that, you have to keep, you have to keep learning. But here, here's also, along with your incredible analogy, which people can relate to. This is what happens when you skip breakfast. <laughs> exactly. It, it takes a culture of adaptability to be able to switch your focus from one major specialty or group collective task, as we call them, to other ones. But they, they generate and take advantage of things that the McDonald's model cannot. So the McDonald's model, for example, if Henry calls in sick, who's the tomato slosser, Yeah. well, they can fill the gap sometimes, but it's usually the manager that has to do that, which slows down production. So the ability to adapt is, is, is not nearly as not a, a, a amount as it is with the family restaurant. So there's the idea of, of in the 50s, it was called management by exception. Yes. Right? The, the, the idea that the job of the manager is to work an existing process and to fill in the gaps. And this is, this is I think, is, is one of the things that um, a um, sort of bad idea that got into the, yeah. the, the French army in the 1920s, 1930s, what they called Colmaté. Colmaté, You know, yeah. Bob Doty, in his, in his book, uh, Seeds of Disaster, about the French army in the, in the 1920s and 30s, and then his uh, book about... Um, in the fall of France in 1940. Breaking point. Breaking point yeah. about, about the Battle of Sedan. Both terrific books. They're, they're both still in print. They've been recently republished by by Stackpole. So you, you can find them and wherever, wherever you buy books. And the um, they use the the, the, the phrase colmaté. Yes. You know to, to, to fill things fill in. Things, yeah, yeah. And you look at how they, they they dealt with heavy weapons. The idea was that everybody every echelon has a little bit of the same thing because the job of the regiment is to fill in the gaps left by the battalions. The job of the, you know, the division or brigade, depending how you're organized, is to fill in the gaps left by the, by the regiments and, and, and so forth. So really the, the, the vision in my mind is of the senior leader with a can of spackling. Yes. Right. He's, 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 he's there, you know, after the, after the drywall is up, he's there, you know, Doing, um, filling, filling in the holes. He's, filling he's in the, yeah, the gaps. Yeah. Filling in the gaps. Very different from uh, the contemporary German conception of of heavy weapons, which was all about again building this Schwerpunkt. Yeah. Right? You know, focus, concentration. You don't have a lot of ammunition. You got to use it sparingly, but you don't spread it out. You you say, okay, where is going to make make the biggest impact? Yeah, and then and, and, and as you've talked about many times, the American military, particularly the Army, was heavily influenced by Frederick Taylor. And in my research for my major book on the personnel system, Path to Victory, which was reprinted in August uh, 13, a second edition, uh, 
the U.S. Army felt the same way, that if we make everything a like pattern to fill in the gaps, then we're not relying on one specialized person. But the result is you have a very compliant and very conformist uh, organization. Uh, and our public schools, by the way, in 1905, when they came into being, yes. uh, adapted the Frederick Taylor model in what was called the competency theory of education, which is how to mass-produce workers. So really, it's all about mass-producing a standard product, and a product that's, that's of a consistent quality, but of a relatively low quality. Yes. And, and the presumption here, here is that things don't change very often. And the one thing that strikes me about, about studying about military history is the rapidity of change. Uh, think about, about tanks in the Second World War how a tank that would have been a wonder wef- weapon in 1940, something like the, the M3 Grant, you know, the, 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 the Lee Grant, um, by 1943, it's obsolete. The same thing with, with aircraft, uh, with, you look at the rapidity with which the, the armament suites of, of naval ships change, uh, the rapidity which with tactics change, the way you use different weapons. You know, compare you know, infantry in, in 1940 with 1944. Uh, somebody was telling me uh, uh, about the, uh, it was both, both a film and the book, Ghost Soldiers, about yes. the, 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 the Rangers, U.S. Army Excellent Rangers book. liberating the, the, the Prison, prisoners yeah. of war in, in yeah. the Philippines, and how the, um, the American prisoners who had been, you know, in the prison camp uh, since... Bataan. Since 1942. Yeah. Uh, and, and now it's 19, it's late 44, 45. It's 45. For 45. Yeah, okay. so, 45. So, so late in the war. Yeah. And they don't recognize the soldiers. Yeah. The helmets are different. The, you, you, you've gone from a Springfield rifle to an M1 rifle. Uh, the Tommy Thompson machine gun. The, all all yeah. this new stuff. And that's, that's th- three years. Yeah. All right. So, so the, the, the military world, you know, particularly once you're in contact with a living, breathing, thinking, adapting, creative enemy is always, always changing. And so that, that to me suggests that, that the Taylorist approach is, is, is not something that, uh, uh, that you want to do most of the time for, for, for most purposes. And the challenge now, getting to the main purpose of, of this podcast, which is the background has been great, and you and I both take time as historians and make sure people understand why we got to where we do, did do now, is learning. How do you create a learning organization, a learning culture that supports a doctrine of the Marines called maneuver warfare in the Army. The current command and control system is called mission command. The, the deal is you can't have those two out of sync because the current learning system that the military uses with very rare exceptions is linear and Frederick Taylorism. Uh, you get your assignment, you read your books, you don't get lectured at, uh, and then you take a test, and a lot of times the test is, I've had command and general staff college students tell me, oh, we took a multiple choice test, which is one of the worst ways to retain and, and apply knowledge. So what Bruce and I have been working on hard, Bruce more so longer than I have, is how to take a learning system, which fortunately we found through the Germans, uh, exists to, to support the cultures that the military claims they have. Yeah. Well, but the, the, the thing about, I mean, there's, there's so many things wrong with, with multiple choice. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, from simply from the point of view of, of learning. If your only goal is to get ideas or words or images into somebody's head, it's a very inefficient, very inefficient way because it doesn't force you to engage them. It's only about recognition. Yeah. It's, oh, I, I, I know what that is. I don't have to chew on it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to integrate it. I simply have to recognize it. Right. And that, from the point of view of memory, and you've done a lot of work on, on, on memory, and particularly um, you're a great fan of the, the work of, of Dr. Bork. Out at UCLA, yes. Yeah, yeah, the le- one of the leading learners in the world. And, and I'll jump in here. Fortunately for Bruce and I, what what Dr. Bork has brought as a psychiatrist, not a not a learning, not an education person, and we'll get into that later, but he's bring, he's brought in a lot of experiments that validate the things that Bruce and I have discovered through the military history side, that people that take these rote memorizations and lectures learn the least. The people that are challenged through various tools like tactical decision games, creek spills, Bruce Bruce is an expert at case method, forcing cases. When you vary all those in a course, people learn how to apply it, which is key in the situation which will help them solve major problems. So we have the science on one hand by Dr. Borg, and then the historical research extensive that Bruce has done and myself that validate when you bring these two together to create the right learning methodology, it exists. Now that the problem is overcoming the fortress bureaucracy and dug in beliefs of security, because people or humans are secure in what they've done and what's been successful for them, uh, we have to. That's our challenge to overcome that. So right, this is Robert uh, Bork. It's, it's pronounced or spelled Bjork with, with, with the but J. The J, 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 J is silent. And uh, there's actually a page about his work on some good podcasts in which he's speaking. Some some good good uh, online videos, and you can find those on uh, Radio PME Present. It's one of, yeah. one of the blogs that I, I uh, maintain. Uh, and again, we, we should have um, some links uh, to that. But if, if, you, if you don't have the link, just, just uh, you put, go to your search engine and say, you know, uh, write down Radio PME Present at Blogspot. And you'll 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 find us, uh, and you'll find a, a page all about Robert uh, Bork, and uh, he often does a lot of work with his wife Elizabeth Bork, yes. and they they really have done a lot of work on learning and uh, and, and and he's very practical. He's, he's a real scientist. He's, he's he's got the the science behind it, but particularly if if you're a, if you're a, a student right now, if you're in high school or college or graduate school, um, great study tips from from. Uh, Robert Bork and Elizabeth Bork. So um, let's get. Let me add something about Bork quickly. My first introduction to him was at a learning conference hosted by Army Training and Doctrine Command. That's the aspect of the Army for you for your listeners out there that handles the training and learning and the doctrine as part of the U.S. Army. It's equivalent to the U.S. Marine Corps Training and Education Command. Uh, But Dr. Bork was invited by the new Trade Commander General William Wallace not related to the Wallace of Scottish thing. Yes. And his lecture was how the Army trains is backwards. And what Bork said is the way we go about looking at psychomotor skills first and, and rope memorization, and then sometime later we say it's time for cognitive 
ability, the ability to solve problem and, and learn adaptability is backwards. We should do it the opposite uh, because what happens is when you start your psychomotor development, i.e. repetitive task training, which is industrial, you get locked into your view of the world is very narrow and you get locked in you, and as you get older, your mind is not able to take in the ability it is, but it's slower at it, the, the, the necessary skills to become adaptive. So he was arguing against what we often call crawl, walk, run. run. Yeah, exactly. And I've, if you've ever watched uh, small children who are about to start walking, what's interesting is, yes, sometimes they crawl, but they also dance. Yes. Right? Yeah. And the... Um, uh, it's not the most elegant dancing, but what they're doing is they're really trying out a lot of things. It isn't, it isn't a, a simple linear process. But the child is experimenting with all sorts of different ways of moving because you know, walking is a very complex movement. You know, Why don't you we, talk about one of your favorite, the, the developer of kindergarten and, and what the German officers call kindergarten tactics. Oh, yes. Okay, so, so uh, this is, um, I apologize to the listeners for, for, for too many digressions, but this is actually uh, relevant to our topic, which is the relationship between mission command and, uh, and learning. So um, there's a Another German term, Vorschule, preschool. And if you you go into the German literature, what's interesting is how it's applied to tactical decision games, what we call decision games. So the idea is that these things aren't training per se, but they prepare you for training. So tell us what what, what a tactical decision game is. Tactical decision game is a situation... Well, first it's a tool that a teacher can use to develop not only tasks, but tax in context of a problem. And we'll get more than that in a minute. But the tactical decision game, or as West Point calls them, tactical decision exercise, is a situation where you present a situation and you give limited amount of time to the students to solve a problem. And then you select a student, or they volunteer, to defend their course of action in front of their peers and their teacher, which is a way to build character. And it's a great tool only if it's done correctly. Bruce and I recently had a discussion on my Mission Command Facebook page where Bruce posted something, uh, and, and the biggest mistake is people present them like a lecture. No, it's called the art of facilitation. The teacher needs to know how to facilitate and leave their ego at the door, or the TDG becomes nothing more than a lecture. So a tactical decision game is a great tool only if it's used correctly. So, so what, what, what the, the facilitator does... And it's often in, in, a, in a unit, it's a, it's a unit leader. So it could be your, your squad leader, your fire team leader, your, your um, a platoon commander, company commander, battalion commander, so on and so forth. The, the leader you know, gathers his, his, his people together, his Marines, his soldiers together, and says, here's the situation. Uh, and lays out a tactical situation. And says, now, you're in charge. What do you do? What are your orders? And then people give their orders, and then there's the critique. And there's a real art to handling the critique. That's really the hardest part about it. Uh, there's a, there, I, I found a great description of 
Helmut von Moltke, the, the elder Helmut von Moltke, uh, who was um, not so much the father of mission command, but 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 the, the grandfather, in a sense, yes, of mission command, and how he facilitated the tactical decision games that he used for, for training his subordinates on, on the old general staff. Uh, and I've, I've translated that, and I've, I've posted that on the... Yeah, you have. Uh, the Case Method in PME Extra blog. Also, just type in your into your search engine, Case Method in PME. Um, Blogspot, again, the, the key word to get everything you know, out of the search engine is, is Blogspot. And uh, you'll see um, a description of how Moltke facilitated. And the point is not to say, well, there, there are a number of, of bad things you can do uh, uh, to, to ruin the, the exercise. Uh, tell me about the, the bad things people do to ruin uh, tactical. They do all the talking. Yes. That's one. Another thing, they don't, they, when the course of action comes in, they allow the other people that are critiquing the course of action to go off on a tangent and present what they're going to do. No, it's about what the current person is doing to critique. And that's very important. There are some things that facilitator needs to, to drive or guide the student. But those two are the two major things that I, I, I try to teach in my workshops not what to do. So I always tell everybody, especially more senior ranking officers and NCOs, leave that ego at the door. Yes, right. It, it, it's, not a, it, it, it's not about saying, well, here, you, you had your lovely solutions. That's that's well and good. But here is my solution. <laughs> that, you know, and the the, the um, now I think that in many cases the facilitator will want to present his own solution, but that is for a different purpose. That is so his subordinates understand the way he thinks. Yeah, exactly. But the what you really have um, the the essence of the critique is. A Socratic, I call it the Socratic conversation. I don't say dialogue yes. because, because that uh, suggests it's between two people, but a conversation among Men. multiple people. And you say, you know, Bob, you did this. Why did you do this? Tim, what do you think about what Bob did? Exactly. No, what, 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 uh, what? Uh, would you have done something differently? Uh, so you, you get the get the whole group discussing it, critique back and forth. If it's a small enough group, everyone gets a chance to show uh, his solution, and and you have a discussion. And the the best discussion is the one that draws out the true meaning of education, right? Educare. You're drawing out the the ideas, letting people see their ideas. And think, oh, well, if I do this, what, what are the logical implications of this? So a, a tactile decision game, a TDG, very simple exercise, but, but very hard to, to execute. But it's interesting, that, again, that the Germans used to, used to call this the Vorschule, the preschool. <laughs> because in a sense, it's very much like, like kindergarten. It's, it's the... Uh, Give the kid the finger paints. Oh, sure, Tati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, just, just let him let, let him start drawing, because what what um, and the point is not to, to to pretend that these these finger painting finger paintings are any good. Uh, to, 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 you know, tactics is, is a very difficult, uh, very demanding art. 
but that's how you start. And again, the, the, the missing aspect, which we're getting back into, learning and mission command. So Bruce and I contend that we can move the military or any organization up to the next level of professionalism by doing learning correctly. And what is correctly, that's the important word. It's empowering well-developed teachers to choose the correct method, which Bruce and I can talk about many. Bruce teaches a case method, forcing case method, workshop every Thursday at the uh, at 1630 at the Marine Corps uh, Learning Center. At, at the library. At library. The li- it's called the Library of the Marine Corps yeah. in, the, in the Gray Research Center. Yes. So if, if you, you find yourself aboard uh, Marine Corps Base Quantico, uh, every Thursday, right, 1630, we meet and we do a, a, a decision game at some, some point. It's called Decision Game Club. It used to be called Case Method Club. Yeah. Uh, and we, we've broadened our, um, our activity a little bit because sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll do tactical decision games or decision games of other sorts. Mostly we do forcing cases, which are decision games based on real events, and, things that actually happen. And I've attended a few. I would attend more, but there's conflicts that, yes, that I can't. But my point is everyone that attends from second lieutenants up to retired colonels and colonels all say they got something positive out of it. So Bruce continues to teach, uh, which is a mark of a, of a great leader, of one who teaches and empowers people to be better than they are. Uh, but getting back to what our, Bruce and I, the real learning to, to move up to the next level where the Marine Corps and the Army and the Air Force and Marines and effective organizations need to go is one that empowers teachers that are well-developed uh, based on outcomes. What, what is my vision of success for this class? What is the vision of success for this course? And I'll give you a quick definition. I was working with the Special Forces Q course down at uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina back in 2012. Great year. I had six one-week sessions with them. And I was working with a Sergeant Major Danielson, who was a Sergeant Major of the 1st Training Battalion, which does the tactical tactical phase of the course, like 16 weeks. And he came up with what outcomes meant to him. He said, Don, outcomes for us would be, what do we want that new Grand Green Beret to be able to do the day they graduate from the Q course? What do we not, what do we need to teach him that his team, his A-team, cannot or don't have, doesn't have the time for? That's the same thing. It's The outcome is like a well-defined commander's intent. Here's my vision of success. This is what I want you to achieve, and you have to do it all the way up from the class session, for that class session, all the way up to the overarching organizations. Instead of having full checklist of what the educational call, learning objectives, learning outcomes, all this myriad mountains of, of, of checklists you have to go through. No, instead you have an outcome, which is well-defined, well-written at each level, and then you have some measures of effectiveness, which is not a checklist, but a few points to say, these are guides for me to get there. But it's up to the teacher to pick the tools they need to achieve that. So the teacher has a great deal of freedom. Right. Like and mission command. Yeah, very much like, very, very much like, like the commander, yeah. that, that he, he, he has a vision. Uh, remember, remember General Mike Myatt, yeah. who commanded the 1st Marine Division during, during the Gulf War, defined maneuver warfare as a common vision and decentralized execution. Uh, 
Would you apply that to, to learning as well? Exactly. In the same thing that uh, Marine Corps MCDP-1 uh, warfighting says, the commander's vision is a contract. The director or the, the, the director of a course, the commander of a unit, says, okay, here's my vision of success, the outcome, and I'm, I'm, I'm empowering you, teacher, leader, to reach that. In return, you'll reach my outcome. On the battlefield, the commander says, I'm going to not tell you how to do things, but the contract says within this parameter, say a time limit, you will achieve my vision of success. You do that, then I'll continue to empower you and let you do it the way you think. Well, we've experimented with this, fortunately, with the Army Recon course in 2009. And when we first did it there, uh, the non-commissioned officers and captains that taught the course said now they felt great about driving into work every day because they were being trusted as professionals to get the students to the outcome they wanted versus being told exactly by minute what to do and how to do it. And, and more than that, it seems that if, if you run your courses this way, if you run your, your, your learning this way, and, and note that, that we're both using the term learning rather than teaching yes. most of the time. Uh, that, that's significant, I think. But if the, the, the people who are guiding, instructing, teaching, leading learning activities, if they have this kind of freedom and flexibility, this, they're, they're practicing for command. Exactly. They're, they're, they're demonstrating you know, good, uh, uh, good command practice. Because if, if you, uh, the, the one thing I've noticed over the course of my life is the degree to which life imitates school. Yes. You know, com- compared to most people at most times in history, we spend, we, we, you know, modern Western people in the 21st century spend an immense amount of time in the classroom. So much so, and, and also our formative years, that we expect the rest of the life to look like School, right? And of course, life doesn't look like school at all. But if if you if you teach people uh, to sit down and listen to lectures, read something in a in a very cursory manner, be and told just, exactly what to do when yes, you do it, just reproduce that on a on on a a bubble test, as yes. they used to call them, a multiple choice test, then you're you're, you're telling people some profound lies about the way the world works and particularly how the way that war works. Yeah. Right? You're saying it's all predictable. It's all, it's all been worked out by somebody else. Yes. Just follow that formula. Yes. That, that somehow there is some genius out there who, who has worked out the formula. And what's interesting also about, about the multiple choice world is the degree to which the material, because it has to be processed, it has to go through the whole um, industrial process to get into the system, that takes forever. So what's taught is often, is often obsolete. Whereas you, you compare that to, to war where things are always changing. The technology is changing, the tactics is changing, everything is changing. The, the, um, but, but the notion that, that, that somehow you're going to get this new idea into the system, it's going to be you know, put into doctrine, the doctrine gets put into a lesson plan, the lesson plan 
that that takes forever. Um, I know in, in my experience, I went to the Marine Corps Basic School in 1982, and a few years after that, I went to the National Archives and I looked up the uh, the records of the from the First World War. Uh, the American Expeditionary Force had a uh, a school at Longres in France, yes, right? Yeah. So th- th- this was, the, was the, the AEF Staff College. And I was shocked to find lessons I had been taught as a lieutenant in the 1980s being taught to American officers in, in 1918. Yep. When I interviewed Robert Doherty for my book, Path to Victory, in 1998, he said, Don, you're exactly right. What we replicate today in our education, in our school system for the U.S. Army because he's specific to that, is no different from what the French taught us coming into World War One and in the interwar years afterwards in French schools. The, the lesson plans laid them side by side, and they're all about process and rote memorization and conformity. So, so what we're trying to say is if you want to practice a doctrine of maneuver warfare, which we all love to put on PowerPoints, and a culture or command and control system, it's not a command and control, it's culture, a mission command, uh, then your education system, your learning approach to learning, has to be the same. You can't have one advocating one approach and then expect people to go out and conform suddenly to what you're aspiring or, or aspiring to say is used for the battlefield. So really, the, the, we're talking about two sides of the same coin. Right. That that this this philosophy of learning and this philosophy of war fighting go together. Exactly. That, that they, they have to. They, they mirror each other. Uh, that uh, in, in practicing one, you're preparing yourself. You're preparing yourself uh, for, for the, the other. other. And th- they're actually remarkably similar. Yeah. But the re- and you, the re- the listener out there is probably saying, "Well, why don't we know this? If a guy like you and Bruce have all this information and research and have spent years, again, it goes back to control. The reason we go with a linear system." our industrial age system because that goes to the lowest common denominator if we make everything the same there's very little chance or risk for Matt for a failure i.e. a bad teacher as we apply it to learning so instead of having a great system where you may take a risk and have a, a bad and you do have bad teachers but they should be dealt with you create a system where anybody can come in and using the mass printed curriculum can teach it that way, at least knowledge is being imparted, even though it's it's the worst way, as scientists, Dr. Bork will tell you, uh, it's the worst way, but it's the safest way. And what Bruce and I are, have been advocating and continue to advocate to this day is do away with all those fears, because if you pick the right people, you're going to make a massive leap where you're at now in professionalism, adaptability, and the ability to succeed under a culture of mission command. So right, there, there is a risk you have to take. It's the same thing with mission command exactly. on on the battlefield. It's 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 a high risk, high payoff uh, uh, system, uh, and if you contrast it to a methodical battle um, system on the battlefield, with a checklist mentality or a checklist ma- me- mentality in 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 schooling, I won't call it education. I will call it schooling. Yes. The just like the McDonald's, you have a universal standard, but that universal standard is very low, very predictable, and it makes it very hard to excel, almost impossible uh, to excel. And the, 
So the question then is, how, how can people find out more about either, either Mission Command or the kind of learning that goes along with Mission Command? Well, of course, you've been given your, you have great sources that have, have, have helped me a lot, Bruce. Not only writing, but also teaching. But we have, uh, simply by putting your name in, in, in search engine or my name, Donald Vandergriff, with adaptability or learning or outcomes-based training and education, you will find the wealth of articles both and books both of us have written uh, as ways. The thing that Bruce and I have been able to do, with Bruce being one of the original founders of Saul, over, what, two decades now, three decades? Oh, three decades. Three. 1989, winter of 89, 1990 is when I wrote the curriculum for the, for the Marine Corps School of Advanced Warfighting. As life should have been. Yeah. But my point is, Bruce and I had, and I made this work at Georgetown University where we went from 241st out of 270 to number one in three years. This is the Georgetown University ROTC. Army ROTC. Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC. Yes, thank you. <laughs> A quick story about what you said. We see school as life should be. Is one of our one of my cadets came back. He was a lieutenant in the, in the in the armor. He was a recon lieutenant in Baghdad. He came back to talk talk to us and he said, "You guys, you guys did one bad thing." We said, "Oh, well, what? You spoiled us. We thought the army would be like this in that we were always learning, always challenged, empowered. Uh, we ran the program, and then we get in the army, and it's top down, zero defects." Yeah, very little latitude for accept, excelling or experimentation. So that was a good thing, but I said we got to set the example in our courses for what the doctrine should look like. So, yeah, you, you do these search engines. You can find Bruce and I's uh, uh, work uh, out there everywhere, or as Bruce so alluded to, just contact us, and uh, we always get back to people. Yes, and you can always reach us you know, through our various uh, websites. Uh, I've got, if, if you... Uh, Type into your URL. Type this URL into your into your uh, into your computer into your search engine. Uh, Teachusmc.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, Teachusmc. Uh, that will get you to the military instructor gateway, and that is a website I've set up to connect you to various resources uh, in in this world, including a lot of, uh, of podcasts. I've got what I call Radio PME. Yes. Is, is the podcast aggregator where you can find podcasts of interest, both historical and, and present day. We have so many podcasts, I had to split the, the blog into two, two blogs. The uh, case method in, in uh, professional military education, I uh, also had to split that into two blogs. Yeah, you because did. There's so much yeah. material. Uh, that's organized uh, a lot of, if you're looking for some uh, material on the philosophy of, of, of decision games, some sample decision games, a lot of them collected by, by Brendan McBreen. Yes, Brendan McBreen excellent. Brendan McBreen is a splendid, a splendid U.S. Marine, did a lot of work, uh, particularly with, with the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, uh, when, when he was a young officer with, uh, serving with them. There, there, there is a lot of material out there. I'm trying to you know, gather it, make it, make it more um, more accessible. So, so it, it is it is out there. And, and, and like I said, what's Bruce and I have actually applied this. So, so we're not theorists in the Ivy Tower, Ivory Tower, saying do this, and we've never tried it. And there's also numerous officers and NCOs out there. Uh, one of them uh, is one of my favorite uh, students, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chad Foster, who fortunately the Army has given. He's on the brigade command list. 
but he took these methods to his squadron 410 cav out at fort carson two years ago and ran and created a culture of mission command and he was very very successful and the morale of his subordinates leaders was nco and officer was incredible uh, but he got exposed to it in 2008 at the uh, Department of Military Instruction at West Point, and he ran with it there. And then as a squadron uh, operations officer and brigade operations officer, he convinced his chain of command to let him continue to apply. Uh, so you've got people that are out there that have successfully uh, applied this these methodologies, made them work with incredible results. And I, I, I suspect, I don't know this for a fact, but, but I would, I would uh, not be surprised and, and would, um, uh, I think, can predict that there's a, the way that he teaches, the way Chad Foster teaches his, his soldiers, the way that he leads, and also the way he runs the life in garrison, all the administrative, the, the, all those three things will be in, in harmony with Mission command. Mission command. It with is. each other. It really is. It's it, these are the three legs of, of of the mission command culture. How you fight, how you learn, and how you do all the little chores yeah. that, that that you you do in peacetime. But his first, he, from the moment he took command, he says, "Here's my vision," and he began within the week developing his subordinates on how to be empowered and take responsibility to break some of the bad habits the Army had already put him through, and he did it. So how long did it take him to make that change? Do you, do you have a sense of that? In his squadron? or did In his squadron, career? yeah. I think a couple of months. Uh, we talked a lot about it. He would be able to give you a better answer. But but what he did from the get-go is he began developing. He started using TDGs and doing workshops he, first, but he trained or he developed his yes. subordinates on how to do TDGs. And within a, a short span of a couple of months, he didn't have to do them anymore. They were doing them. And then everything he did was he put in his commander's intent or his outcome of success, and he empowered people. And th- th- this, this actually is a, is a side point. Of, so, so a couple of months uh, to, to, I think, to convince people. To convince people. That he was another serious. Few, another few months to create a culture where people knew they could make decisions in his absence. And as long as... They could explain the reason they made their decision uh, within moral and ethical guidelines. It was fine with him. But he always said, my job is to make all my subordinates better than me and make them be able to take the next level of responsibility. And they knew he was sincere after a couple of months. Well, this is, this is the great, the, I, think, I think, the great joy of Mission Command, both as a leader and as a, as a teacher and also as a... a, a um, a peacetime administrator. Yes. Yeah. With, with that, um, I, th- I think you, you got a, a article in at least one of your anthologies about uh, applying mission command to to, to garrison. Life. In the first one by uh, Daryl Fawley, who, who's currently an operations officer at Fort Stewart. Daryl applied these philosophies that he was at uh, University of Ohio, not Ohio State, but University of Ohio, in his command. He applied these philosophies in those places, and they worked wonderfully. But his first step, again, was developing people to succeed when he was empowering them and convincing them he was sincere, not just talking about it. Because as you and I know, a lot of people love to put it on PowerPoints. We're going to do mission command, and they act just the opposite because they don't realize what they've got to do to prepare people 
to succeed in mission command. Well, you have to trust people. It's, it's and that's why you often use the, you see the, the phrase trust tactics trust as, task, as, yeah. as as a um, uh, an equivalent to to mission command. It's you have to trust people. And that, of course, is it, it requires courage. It requires moral courage. Moral courage, which is tougher than physical courage. Yes. Uh, we prize physical courage because, again, it's a tangible, but moral courage is a tougher one to take because it could be career-ending, especially in today's environment. You, know, you really have to take a risk, and you have to be able to say, yeah, you know, I, I, I trust you. You're going to do the right thing. And, the, and, and it's something I, I recently read um, Somewhere in social media, but I think it was associated with the uh, the Wavel Room, which is which is a, yeah. a, a very um, uh, a very good website uh, uh, put up by some people associated with the British Army and, and very good. Uh, Truth and Advertising. I, I I write for them sometimes. The uh, that that mission command is is basically trust people beyond the point of your own comfort. I'm, I'm not doing justice to the quote. I should I should have, uh, but. But, but look up the Wavell Room, and they've got some very good articles on mission command uh, in the British Army. Uh, because the uh, one thing, I mean, we talk a lot about the Germans historically, but I think that every army has two cultures. Yes. There is a mission command culture, and there's a, uh, a McDonald's culture. factory like Frederick Taylorism culture. Yeah. Taylorism culture. And they're always in, in, uh, in conflict with each other. And you... And you see see them pop up at, at various points in time and and, and place because you know I mean ironically if you if you look at at French military history there have been times when, when the French army has had a sure. effectively mission command culture I think the reason I we both focus on the Germans is the Germans created the literature to they support did. it they they talked about it they created the vocabulary they that culture is most accessible whereas very much with with um, the french army culture it's very hard to get at yes very, very hard to find find very little of right the 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 um, um and with with people you know like the, the finnish army has a great tradition of of mission, uh, command. mission command the israeli uh, forces they don't always do it. Yeah. It's always the tension. But with with the, the, the Finns and the Israelis, to be perfectly frank, it's a, the language barrier. Yes, to, 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 to get to get at the, the material. But that that but I think I think having talked to uh, a lot of Finnish friends and and and, and Dan- the Danes are really good at it too. Yes. They, their forces are small, but they. I worked with them in Afghanistan. Of of all the nations I worked with, I was most impressed by the Danish. Uh, forces I worked with because they practiced mission command. They had sergeants running patrols, whereas everyone else would have had officers or senior NCOs. So, I mean, and, and they're, they're, they went about business in a very professional way while they still looked like they were relaxed about it. Well, but, but that's the other thing, yeah. is, is that you don't... The, the beauty of mission command is that because of the trust, because you were... You know that... You're, you're you're among friends. Yeah, exactly. Right. That um, uh, that everyone is working together. That it is in fact relaxed. It's demanding. The standards are incredibly high, and in fact, most people are exceeding yeah. the expectations. But it's relaxed. It is it is really a band of brothers, as opposed to a a system where you're always. Worried about somebody comparing you to the checklist. Exactly. 
and you're always in competition. And the competition is not open, transparent sports competition. It's the worst of the kind, the backstabbing. They're your friend to your face and then uh, dropping a word, a bad word about you to the boss or something like that behind your back to get that rating better than yours. That's the, another big downfall of our current military culture, which they don't like to admit, but there's thousands of surveys that say otherwise. Uh, but in, in, I've been in organizations, uh, when we ran Georgetown University Ar Army ROTC, it was a mission command culture, and we worked very hard. I'm not going to lie to you, but our morale was very high, and I had hundreds of letters from cadets that became lieutenants that said, thank you, you prepared us for combat, you prepared us for dealing with complexity because of what you did there. So the payoff is having a positive influence on the others. And that I think is is, is a great uh, a great place to uh, to wrap up. It really is about about having a positive influence. It's about empowering people, and 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 encouraging people. I wouldn't even say encouraging. Creating a, yeah. a a situation in which people people want to learn, and they're constantly pushing themselves. They take ownership of the learning. Yes, take, taking ownership again. Back to this idea of of the joy in taking responsibility. The fair Again, again, I apologize to the cat for my my. Um, oh, it's a lot better than mine. My my uh, my Milwaukee Deutsch. I hung that word up in my cubicle, by the way, and everyone's been going by asking about. Yes, it. Yes. Oh, good, good. Very much part of, of of a culture. So, wrapping it up, mission command, in learning, in leadership. And also in garrison, really different aspects of the same thing. Yes, exactly. And it's all about building a mission command culture. So, Don, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us today in our, in our podcast. And I look forward to our, our next conversation. Many thanks to Don and Bruce for taking the time to put this together. You can find links about mission command and other topics discussed, as well as leaving us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Perform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth. <laughs>